Welcome everybody from around the world. Hello everyone. Welcome to Commentaries from the Edge. This is Karen Goldberg and here's what's coming up. I'm very honored and delighted to welcome back Dr. Tony Belize for the third time to the program. And at this particular moment, I'm talking to all of you listeners in the United States and around the world on a Friday, a Friday morning, perhaps like no other, because this Friday ends a week in which we are here in Los Angeles, California. We had just had an election for mayor and we are the second largest city in the United States. We are hosting with our president, Joe Biden, a summit of the Americas, welcoming representatives American countries to meet here to discuss with our president Biden how we can go forward in a more cooperative and, and beneficial way for everyone. And even that has been controversial because there are three countries in which the presidents have not been invited here. And then needless to say, perhaps I'm sure this is known around the world on this Friday morning, we have begun the public hearings of looking at the January 6, 2021 coup in which an attempt was made to overthrow the government of the United States of America. And the panel doing the public hearing has begun by showing that our former President Trump was actually one of the organizers and leaders in this attempt to overthrow our government. And I will add, perhaps most importantly, layered upon all that this Friday morning is the fact that we are in grief of the violence that has been visited upon our streets, our schools, even our markets here in the United States, and really in mourning for the loss of innocent lives, in particular, most recently, in Buffalo, New York, innocent people who were gunned down while in a supermarket, and the tragedy and deep sadness of losing precious young children and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas. So, Dr. Belize, you come on to us on this Friday morning uh, at a very intense time and a time of great turbulence here in the United States. And I thank you so much for taking the time to help us address this and to kind of try and make sense of where we go from here. Thank you, Karen. Always a pleasure to uh, get a chance to talk to you about these things uh, in an opportunity to reach more people. But the last time we spoke, I talked about turbulence and the pandemic. And I think we've, we've uh, sort of transitioned to turmoil and uncertainty. Um, as you mentioned, we have the Senate hearings on the January 6th insurrection, which uh, will further polarize our country. 
we have the 2024 presidential elections looming in the foreground, another source of stress and uncertainty. The uh, pro-life, pro-choice debate. Um, also, hatred-inspired acts of violence, including mass shootings, targeted school and workplace violence, and the ongoing pandemic. And so I'm going to interrupt you at that moment only because I want to make sure, even though, as I mentioned, Dr. Belize is with us for the third time, and many of our listeners have had an opportunity to hear you, Dr. Belize, and therefore know of your background. But I want to remind them, as well as our new listeners, a little bit about your background before we go forward. And that is that Dr. Belize provides violent threats assessments to school districts and corporations. He has a long career of training law enforcement, first responders, mental health staff professionals, and educators on preventing targeted violence. He was the deputy director of Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health's Emergency Outreach Bureau for 14 years, which is the largest mental health government community uh, organization here in the United States. And there he established several programs that focused on adults and students at risk for targeted violence and really created new ideas of how you approach in a coordinated way to prevent and to respond to people who are on a path to violence or who actually are doing violence. So Dr. Belize comes with us with uh, both a, a national and international reputation and, and expertise in this particular area. So thank you again for offering all your wisdom to us. Thanks, Karen. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, those are several areas of concern for everyone in the country. And then there's the uh, forgotten pandemic, gun violence. In 2020, which was the year of COVID, protests and elections, people purchased more than 23 million guns, which was a 66% increase from 2019. In, in 2022, to date, there have been over 250 mass shootings, which is an average of 11 per week. And the definition of a mass shooting is four or more shot or killed in one incident. And I wanted to highlight three uh, of, of concern uh, May, 20, May 14th, 2022, the Topps supermarket in Buffalo, New York, where an 18-year-old white supremacist targeted a supermarket in a primarily African-American community. He chose the store by researching zip codes to identify the closest place to him where there was a large concentration of African-American citizens. So he drove 200 miles to the location, and to date, it's the deadliest mass shooting of the year. In May 17, 2022, at Geneva Presbyterian Church in Laguna Woods, California, a 68-year-old Chinese immigrant targeted a Taiwanese community motivated by his hatred for Taiwan, which was his place of birth. He chose the church at random and didn't know anyone there. And he drove from Las Vegas, Nevada to Orange County. Uh, he was also affiliated with an organization in Las Vegas that was opposed to Taiwan's independence from China. And then a week later, May 24th, Robb Elementary School in Nivaldi, Texas, an 18-year-old student fatally shot 19 students and 
two teachers and wounded 17 other people after shooting his grandmother in the forehead at home. Uh, this was, is the deadliest shooting in America, school shooting since Sandy Hook. And what we begin to see is nothing new. I mean, it's, it's, it's very sad, but, but we build on what we already know. For example, the idea of soft targets, locations that are lax or have non-existent safety measures, um, houses of worship, schools, and personal, political, or ideologically inspired locations. And uh, then also the phenomena of targeted school violence in smaller communities. This is now, uh, if you look at all the major uh, acts of targeted school violence, beginning with Columbine in 1999, these happened in smaller communities, either a low population count um, and low square miles or a lot of square miles, but low population. But again, it's happening in lots of places. So where we are now is, you know, more weapons, a nation in turmoil, access to weaponry, and failure to prevent acts of targeted violence, despite a fair amount of literature and training opportunities on assessment and prevention. And I think that, you know, given how shocking, and in each time it seems as if uh, the population in the United States ends up shocked by what is happening, and of course in grief, and then of course around the world, people are asking, why does this happen in the United States? And I think when you were mentioning Columbine, 1999, so we're talking about 23 years ago, you would think after all the work you did in the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health and in even developing new ideas and new approaches of coordinating all the people that need to be coordinated, training people, in uh, how to deal if you are in a if you are with an active shooter, and yet, as you said, how is it ha possible that we haven't had any progress? It, it's it's sad, you know. What what we have now are a patchwork of programs and funding uh, that that combined, uh, you know, hasn't coalesced into a, a national model. Um, and, and you're right. Uh, the program, the, the strategy we developed in LA County, it works. We haven't had an instance of targeted school violence in LA County where the uh, school threat assessment and response team uh, was involved. And, and, and it wasn't just about the program, it was about the, the partnerships and the collaboration that we developed with our law enforcement and education partners. But um, it is frustrating. Um, I'm, I'm one of other experts on this that really, you know, just get angry, frustrated about the fact that why are we repeating these things when it's so unnecessary? But, and, and, and we've had yet now another problem, which is the failure of the active shooter response protocol. It's yes. And, you know, it's interesting because, um, I, I would, I'm thinking when you say, you know, the training has been there about that small town outside of Dallas, Texas, in which the shooter entered into the Jewish synagogue there. Right. And uh, 
there were, of course, at that point, at that point, it was only a small number of people. It was, you know, relatively, it was three people and, and the rabbi, the, the clergy person. Now, they had all been trained. And especially, apparently, the rabbi had been trained. And so, you know, that was an example where there was a protocol in place, there was training in place, and they practiced what they were trained to do. And the outcome of it uh, was successful in the sense that nobody died and no one was shot. Right, right. And, and, and that's a good, good example of, of um, empowering people to take responsibility for making things as safe as possible in light of our nation's failure to progress. You know, in the, the first time, two things you mentioned. One, that how since Columbine, things keep repeating themselves. As uh, recently as 2018, an individual in Crimea, in the country, uh, carried out a Columbine-style attack successfully. He was mm -hmm. able to do mm -hmm. everything that Eric Harris was unable to do. And he copied uh, the shooters there to the extent that he wore the same clothing and carried out his suicide in such a way that he fell in the exact pose mm -hmm. of one of his heroes. That's the extent of connection individuals have with these people they, they uh, idolize. Um, but returning to active shooter response um, didn't work in Florida, and they're still uh, discussing that. And now in Uvalde, Texas, it didn't work. And, and that's unfortunate because um, that was hailed as the law enforcement strategy of choice and protocol following the incident at Columbine High School. And it, it has worked in a lot of places, but it didn't in these places. And um, at Marjorie Stoneham Douglas School, 17 were killed and 17 were injured. And at Robb Elementary School recently, 19 students and two teachers were killed. So, you know, the way, if you take a look at the global, the bigger picture, it's like our nation's leaders have failed their constituents. Uh, the gun rights advocates continue to blur the debate about access to high-powered rifles. And to a large extent, our politicians favor politics over safety. And, and, and what happens is, in the absence of leadership, it, it, it further fuels this era of turmoil and uncertainty. You know, And the worst part is that these acts of violence inspire others to do the same. So now we're looking at anniversary attack dates, performance terrorism, and manuscripts left behind by the shooters to fuel those with similar ideologies. Um, time and again, we see the attacker reference other attackers and that the manuscripts they leave behind become blueprints for further attacks. And I have to go back to the infamous 14 words as the calling card for violence. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. Um, hatred-inspired acts have occurred throughout the world and linked through social media. We have individuals uh, quoting or making reference to the individual in Oslo, Norway, Christchurch, New Zealand, Gilroy, California, Charleston, South Carolina. Right? Uh, the shooters tend to publish their political beliefs that justify their act of violence. And more importantly, they provide detailed information about choice of weapons, tactics, 
and uh, surveillance and counter surveillance strategies. So each one leaves behind a blueprint for future shooters. And social media is what connects these individuals. And it inspires others to build on the perceived successes of their idols. You know, we see articles about these guys as monsters. There's a percentage of people that see them as heroes, right? And right. So, so these are martyrs and true heroes for those that are inspired by hatred and ideologically inspired acts of violence. And when, in you mention about, when you mention about the internet, uh, you know, in 1999 for Columbine, we didn't really have that in the kind of internet access that that exists today and i think you know the fact as you mentioning about repeating is you know i just there, recently there were there was a mother and father uh parents of one of the precious little children that was gunned down in uvalde texas that was pleading with politicians for the kind of uh, gun legislation that you mentioned. And I thought the mother really was powerful because she looked right into the camera and said, and said to other women out there, other mothers out there, you know, you do not want to go through the pain that I'm going through. But unless you pressure the politicians to make a new, to make these laws, you also, you may be one of the mothers suffering like I am. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, it harkens back to uh, Sandy Hook, Marjorie Stoneham Douglas, the never again idea. And, um, you know, what, what some of the politicians are very good at, they are debaters. They are deba debaters and deflectors. And by, they know to do what's common, to lay low, wait, let people forget and wait for something else to distract people. So um, it's a sad situation, but you know, in about 100% of the cases I've reviewed, you know, these individuals were isolated individuals, but connected through social media. Um, they, they tend to be marginalized and that's why they're at risk of being radicalized or inscripted into a movement, a cause or an ideology. And, you know, social media platforms provide opportunities for everyone in America to join a club, a political movement, a hobby. Um, but unfortunately, a percentage of individuals choose hate-inspired groups, and even a smaller percentage see themselves as true heroes in whatever movement they've selected. So, so that's sort of, in, in, we can go on forever and ever, but, but that's sort of, in a nutshell, where we are, which is... Uh, a lot of lateral movement, but no forward movement. So what to do? You know, you, know you, you, you see this unfolding, you know, week after week. The data doesn't seem any better. Uh, 2022 is on track now to break the records of 2021 mm. relative to mass shootings. Um, and and so, so what do we do? So, so one is obviously vote. Vote for people that will choose leadership over politics, right? The yeah. other is you have to make an individual commitment to this. So, so I urge uh, listeners to remain proactive. You know, we have to prevent the first shot. Uh, the, the studies show that even when officers were on the premise with virtually no response time, they were there, there were shootings, there were deaths. So 
we can't wait for the first shot. And I'm not saying that reactive programs such as active shooter aren't important. They are definitely important, but that's not it. That's not the only thing. We have to practice prevention. And you start that by making your family and community safe. You know, um, uh, it includes several things, right? One is the physical element of hardening targets. In other words, making it harder for the individual to surveil, enter, and act your establishment. Uh, that well, is how do you, how do you see, that's, that's the question. And I think in some ways it's also the debate. How do you harden the targets more than they often already are at, for instance, grocery stores in the United States who often have security now for many, many years? And how do you harden our schools so they don't feel like uh, prisoners, pr a prison for the right. children? Well, interesting point, you know, that, that in, in some cases, the security is pretty good, but the implementation is lax. So the, 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 the secure door isn't. Um, I can't tell you how many times we, we, we found a situation where the, the, the person has focused on a site. And uh, as, as uh, you know, the security check is done, it turns out that, you know, employee X is uh, leaving the back door open to have a cigarette break. Um, the locks don't quite work as they should work because no one's practicing. And so, but, and we also know that most of the shooters do a fair amount of surveillance. They will go to a place and see how difficult it's going to be because they don't want to go in and not carry out a, have a, a, a larger body count. So the, um, you can't win everything, but you have to try, right? So in a lot of places, uh, they either have it or they don't, and the ones that have it don't necessarily practice it. But those are deterrents. We know that, um, you know, the common burglar will not go to a place where there's too much uh, security because it's not to their advantage. They want to succeed. They don't want to fail. And so you will find places that have no surveillance, no security. And that's unfortunate because... Uh, there are people that just don't have the means by which to do this. But, but that's one thing that we need to do. The other is cybersecurity. Um, you know, shooters access social media platforms to learn about other shootings. They research weaponry. They research target locations. You know, you're right about Columbine. We didn't have social media back then. But if you go online today and research Columbine, you will find the closed circuit television uh, blips that are out there. And, and that served as their social media platform because I'll tell you, um, as you said, that was 1999 and yet students continue to idolize the shooters mm -hmm. and, and prepare similar acts. So uh, that has been kept alive uh, despite the fact that there wasn't any social media back then. So can you describe what, what your, your, if you could, uh, you know, if you had a wish list, what, what would cybersecurity look like? Well, most places, I mean, most uh, companies that have the, the means are able to monitor social media. Uh, there are programs that will identify the keywords, the, the, the things that, that you should look at. Um, and that's one way of staying on top of this. Um, and it's very effective. Uh, but that's but that's something that uh, 
people should bring up to their school, to the house of worship, whatever, and, and ask them about the cybersecurity. I, I, I resist sort of talking about it in an open forum, not knowing who the readers are. So no apologies. But the idea is that's an important thing to take a look at because it, it's very helpful in preventing, uh, well, preventing violence, but also identifying people on a pathway to violence, right? Right. Um, so, so that's important. The other thing is situational awareness in schools, places of worship and work settings. Um, you know, in, in I think up to 50% of the situation, someone knew about it and didn't say anything. Because there's this concept of leakage. People telegraph what they're going to do. They talk to somebody about it. They'll make a statement. They'll have a post on their social media account. And, and, and uh, people are hesitant to push that forward. But that's oftentimes the first time of worry. Uh, recently did a case where there was an individual posing with a high-powered uh, rifle. And uh, people were, were, you know, smart enough, savvy enough to bring it forward. And, and that created an opportunity for intervention, which was successful, right? So you have to uh, remind people that, you know, security is everybody's responsibility. And so when you identify little kids right, to be good citizens and bring up to teacher or somebody that somebody's not having a good day or someone's talking about being violent, that that's good citizenship. That's not snitching. Same thing with adolescents, right? Same thing with people in the workforce. Especially adolescents, especially right. probably adolescents. Well, when you say successful intervention with that person, what, what is a successful intervention in a case like that? Well, the, the, the model that we had was three things. One, prevent an act of violence. The other was rehabilitate the student or the worker. And then to develop a safety net. So, so in, in cases like that, so in the, in the case I just referenced, it, there was, it was far away from the individual wanting to commit an act of targeted violence. But when you sat down and talked to the individual, a host of personal issues, family issues, concerns about their own future that were the basis for the person feeling more marginalized and needing help. People want hope. People want help. I just saw a person uh, last week who is in big trouble. And he said, you know, I never had any guidance. I went to school. You know, I, I lived with my parents, but no one ever guided me. It would have been so helpful to have something. Right. So that kind of assistance is what makes the difference, right? It's not only to identify the individual, but to help them get back on their feet. Uh, traditional services are not helpful. In other words, uh, arresting the student at risk. Sometimes you need to do that, but it doesn't stop the issue. Expelling the student, it may, uh, you may think that it solves your problem, but it's not over for the student. So it, it, you, might, it might do the opposite. Oh, it's usually some, and oftentimes it's the last straw, right? If you want to give someone justification for harming you, fire them or expel them without a safety plan in place, right? And I'm not suggesting that we don't fire people, that we don't terminate, that we never terminate or expel students. You need to do what you need to do, but at the same time, you have to be mindful that. Uh, what's their landing? 
right? What do you do when you terminate an employer of 28 years who has a wife who's ill and who will lose his house, medical benefits, et cetera, et cetera? You just need to be mindful of those things. And how, and how, what kind of plan do you have? It's almost sort of like a, a, like a, a discharge plan, like you would have from the hospital. In other words, what can you offer a person like that? Exactly, exactly. And what we find is that, that when you're able to provide something, uh, it, it, it helps. It gives the person some hope. It, it, it uh, makes it more a, a carefrontation rather than a confrontation. And yet, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that uh, employers and school personnel don't always have that mindset. You know, uh, and, and again, I, I know what it's like to have a difficult employee or student and how much you'd like to um, have them go away, which might be the right thing. But you need to recognize that they're acting that way for a reason. And uh, exactly. if, if you can help them with that, it makes it uh, a lot easier in the long run. That, and that's where the, the program that we ran and was successful in that um, it was not about hospitalizing the student or getting them arrested. It was about doing that when we had to, but also following up going to the home, making sure that uh, their needs were being addressed. You know, we know that um, people act differently when they're being monitored. And also when you develop, uh, you know, meaningful, productive activity. And, you know, Dr. Belize, you always have emphasized prevention. And it's interesting right now because of the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, you know, it seems like the focus is so much on analyzing the failures that were apparent in the response and in the, um, you know, the, the police response, the, the various different organizations that were coordinating with each other. And, at this, and it seems as if the, the person who actually did the uh, horrific violent event is kind of being lost somewhere mm-hmm. in that discussion about well, who was this 18-year-old? Uh, what kind of life was he living? What happened there between, you know, living, why was he living with his grandmother? What, where are his parents? Uh, and and an ex- example of maybe looking at something I know, you know, you're, of course, your your dedication in your life has been to, to mental health and mental health services. You know, where, is there some way, something we can learn about that 18 year old that can relate to more mental, more mental health services. Right. Right. And, and, and sometimes, you know, the individual doesn't present as needing mental health services in a lot of uh, states, the mental health dollars go to target the individuals with severe and persistent mental disorders. And so it's not this guy, right? It's not this person. And so it, it, it requires, um, you know, the attention and the, the uh, in-depth analysis to help with that. You know, some people don't want to know why the shooter shot all these people because they say it's too late. And, and I sort of disagree with that because it doesn't come out of any empathy, but it more comes out of the practical thing is what can we learn from this person to make it a little better for other people? Because oftentimes what the person is experiencing may not be all that uncommon for other people. So it's, it's important to uh, you know, take a look at the process and see what went wrong. But as you suggested, 
also pay attention to where was this guy at? Where were the triggers? What were the things that put him on a pathway to violence? In some cases, it's bullying, right? And yet sometimes you go to schools and they'll say, no, we don't have bullying here. It doesn't happen. And you talk to the students or the parents, and of course it's there. And does every bully become a school shooter or a workplace uh, harasser? Of course not. But if you intervene at the front end, you begin to develop better coping mechanisms and better uh, defenses and better ideas as to how to handle this. Otherwise, you create someone that just, you know, uh, continues marginalized without good coping skills uh, through adulthood. And, you know, a lot of people drift. We have a lot of people that are marginalized, stuck on social media, underpaid, underemployed, uh, no way forward. And they're in an eternal state of drift. And, and a lot of people like that. Uh, then you have people that receive some sort of intervention. They get a good job. They get married. They go to jail. Uh, they, they join something that's helpful or a cause, right? And then you have the people that I refer to as Yoda. You know, you only die once. Let me make my life meaningful. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pick up a cause and I'm going to be known for this. You know, Tony Belize was a loser, but hey, look what he did mm -hmm. in right. New York, in Idaho, in yeah. you know, wherever. And, and, and other people have done it and they've been idolized. And I'm going to join that group because that makes me something, right? Yeah. And that's the powerful draw. When people don't have something, whether it's a job, a therapist, a, a, a meaningful activity, a volunteer, if they don't have anything, uh, you start to brood and you become more vulnerable. Very vulnerable. Well, and yeah. you know, you're describing, you're really describing a human phenomenon. You're, you're describing a path in which, you know, is part of, for, for some people, part of just their, their path in their life. And I think that, the, you know, the question is people ask themselves around the world, why is this happening in the United States? And so much more than in any other country on the planet. And I don't know if, if the answer to that question, is it simply about guns or are there other things that have evolved in, within our society? Maybe in fact, the fact that, that our violence is worse as related to the pandemic aggravating it. What do you think, Dr. Belize? Well, you know, the martyrs and the heroes see this as a global movement. And um, these instances do occur in other countries, particularly the hatred-inspired uh, situation. Uh, immigrants, uh, individuals with no home, no country, uh, are seen as burdensome by many. Um, I think we have over 80 million individuals in the world that have no country, no home. They have no future. Their kids aren't going to school. They, they live in a, in a country or in a state where no one cares for them. It's not enough money, not enough housing. It's no future, right? Individuals like that become, are at risk for getting radicalized, for joining a movement, right? Uh, we have uh, organizations here in the U.S. communicating with the hatred organizations in Europe, 
talking about the immigrants and what to do. And, and again, preserving a white world that leaves a lot of people out. So uh, these things do happen in other places. Um, we do have, you know, the uh, advantage or disadvantage, as some people would see it, about weaponry. You know, some people think we need more weapons, right? Absolutely. In so, fact, you know, there was a proposal, and it happens often after a school shooting, there's some group or, or some uh, politicians who immediately start, um, you know, yelling for teachers to have guns. Of course, of course. So, 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 you know, it goes back to a point of distraction that if you, if you try and get into this from the point of gun control or mental illness, those are real important key concepts, but they serve as distractors because the, the, the gun issue is far from settled in this country, if ever, right? And we know that monies for mental health will always be tight. There will never be enough money. That, that, that was my mantra. I used to say initially, you know, the, the challenge is um, how to, you know, get the, the funds to do what you need to do. And I, I switched that to say the, 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 the challenge is how to do it with existing funds. You know, you should apply for all the money that might come, but back at the ranch, what are you as a local leader going to do to keep your community safe? Because that's what it's all about. Um, our program in the county didn't have all the money in the world. We had some money to get it going, but as always, competing priorities. There are other things that, that are more important. Prevention is like a soft kind of thing. If it works, no one sees it, Right. And, and so you, you want to spend your money on, on other kinds of things. So, so my point is, as, as we start to, 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 you know, end this thing, that um, we can make a difference. We can't rely on federal or new monies. There's never going to be enough. And prevention is not a popular topic, right? But the safety of our community depends on local leadership. Your chief of police, your mental health director, your school superintendents, they need to pay attention to what has worked and develop functional threat management teams that, that provide training, education, uh, assessment, intervention, and follow-up, right? Uh, they, they, they need to train the community on early warning signs. There's tons written on that. Uh, and identify and engage a troubled individual. And more importantly, establish a safety net with existing resources to have the person get some hope, but also have a place where they can either talk, work, or be that gets them out of the, uh, the uh, you know, planning and, and brooding about violence. And, and so, you know, many dangers, right? A failed political system, uh, the, the politics over safety and common sense. Um, and so one is for us individually is to deny the crisis we're facing to rely on our politicians to do the right thing and to remain passive with our fingers crossed. You know, we need to exercise personal leadership and commitment to our friends, our family, and, uh, you know, do what we can to keep our community safe. I we think need- right now that's, you know, that's really, uh, I would say a common, if you lined up a hundred people, they'd all agree that they, they want desperately to feel that they can do something that they can learn something to <clears throat> to make their 
communities safer. And, and I think even, you know, in the classrooms of schools, I think now young people feel very vulnerable in their schools. Teachers feel vulnerable in their schools. And I think it's an opportunity, perhaps like, you know, the, the old saying a crisis can be an opportunity. Perhaps this is a chance to put into the curriculum the opportunity for teachers to actually talk about this subject to young people and get young people to actually, you know, push their, their families, their parents, their grandparents to become more knowledgeable about, for instance, what you're saying. If you notice something, say something. Right, right. Yeah, the see something, say something, see something, hear something, say something has been very effective and very powerful. There have been other gimmicks and slogans that haven't worked that well. But but the point is, yeah, we have to, we have to realize that this is a uh, community crisis. And while we should expect better leadership, may not happen, right? And, and meanwhile, we need to do what we can to educate our children, keep them safe, and give them the tools. Because, you know, the, the person in trouble that uh, thinks about a school shooting or a workplace shooting, sometimes they don't carry out their acts till college, workplace. And so if you identify individuals early, you provide them with, uh, you make use of existing resources, play and activity. If you take a look at a lot of the shooters, they were involved in uh, athletic pursuits, artistic pursuits. They were completely isolated. They had no one to go to, no one to play with, no one to do something, but stuck on that computer just looking at things, right? So there are a lot of things we can do. And, and the thing we shouldn't do is be passive and keep our fingers crossed and hope that, well, you know, this too, this too will pass. The data shows that uh, it's staying the same, perhaps increasing, but it's definitely not going away. And with the things that we referenced earlier about the, the politics and the hot topic items and the hatred and all of that, um, that's not going away either. No. So, I mean, you're really, you're really inspiring the idea of the, as you say, that, that it's local where we have the power. And also when you were talking about voting, you know, it's very important that people look at candidates, especially here in the United States, we have an election in November of 2022 and we have one coming up in November of 2024. And, you know, we used to have a spirit here and maybe it's still there in the United States. It was called kick the bums out, you know, right. kick the bums out. So, it's also we we could use the power of voting and the power of local our local community. So thank you so much again, Dr. Belize, for taking this time away from obviously at the moment you you know you're you're in great demand. Uh, unfortunately, you're only one person. And we need we need an army of Dr. Belises to to help us here in the United States and and around the world. So thank you for all the work you do and thank you for the contribution to helping make us have a safer world and a safer community. Thank you, Karen. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Commentaries from the Edge. Please subscribe and you will be notified of all future episodes.